Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thanks, Sean. Do keep that passage of Scripture open. And there's a very simple outline on the inside of your notice sheet if you want to follow along. I have two questions for you this morning, if you think about. First question is this. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't people believe in Jesus? If you're a Christian here this morning, that question has probably occurred to you before. To you, Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and your precious friend. You read the Bible and it explains the world so clearly and obviously. The gospel of Jesus just makes sense to you. It seems so clear. And yet friends and loved ones, intelligent people who seem to know what they're talking about and who can make life work, they just don't see it. Perhaps you found this heartbreaking. Perhaps you found it frustrating. Perhaps you've even found it unsettling. If they don't believe and they're not stupid, then have I got it wrong? The second question I want you to think about is this. Why do people believe in Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, that question has surely occurred to you. You're not persuaded by the claims of Jesus. You're not convinced by the Bible's account of this world. Perhaps you simply think you don't need Jesus. After all, life's working out pretty well for you. If there is a God, you're fairly sure things will be okay between him and you. And so you look at your friends and loved ones, intelligent people, who seem to know what they're talking about and who can make life work, and you think, how can they believe this stuff? Perhaps you've had the same sense of feeling a bit unsettled by it. If they believe, and they're not stupid, then have I got it wrong? 
Well, we're looking today at two conversations that Jesus had, one with a group of people who didn't believe in him, one with a group of people who did, and we're going to get his answer to those questions. We're going to think about why someone would choose to put their trust in him and why someone would choose not to. I have two hopes and prayers for this morning. The first is that we would have our eyes open to some of the reasons why someone would say no to Jesus. And we'll see that we're there perhaps as not as straightforward as we might think. That's going to require us to listen today with an open mind as we hear Jesus say some hard things. But if we do that, my second hope and prayer is that we would all say yes to Jesus. And that we would see that there is every reason in the world to keep listening to him. Let's begin then with the first conversation where we see a group of people testing Jesus. Let me set the scene. Jesus and his disciples have just left the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon, where we've seen Jesus give himself to people outside of the borders of Israel. A Canaanite woman has been praised for her very great faith, her humble and submissive dependence on Jesus, the son of David. And a crowd of over 4,000 people have been nourished by Jesus, fed with miraculous bread, and they've praised the God of Israel. But as Jesus returns to Galilee, back to the Jewish area of that region, the response could not be more different. Look at verse 1 with me again, chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you've read Matthew before, if you've read the Gospels before, you know what to expect, don't you, when the Pharisees and Sadducees turn up. They are very rarely good news. We've already seen the Pharisees, along with the scribes, criticize Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands. And Jesus has rebuked them firmly for abandoning the word of God for the sake of their own traditions. The Sadducees, too, had a very unorthodox approach to the Old Testament scriptures. We learn later in Matthew that they denied the idea of the resurrection from the dead. They thought this life was all there is, and Jesus has hard words for them, too. So we're used to seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees as the bad guys in the story. But it's worth seeing in these verses just how negatively they're portrayed. As soon as Jesus gets off the boat, they're there, wanting to test him. Now, Matthew has used this word test before only once as it happens. It was when Satan met Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4 to tempt him to sin against God. And now here are the Pharisees and Sadducees approaching Jesus to test him, to tempt him. They ask him for a sign from heaven, something which will unambiguously show that Jesus really is who he says he is. They want some demonstration of his authority. They're saying to Jesus, you claim to be the son of God, well prove it. And if you remember from Matthew chapter 4, that is exactly what Satan tried to do to Jesus. He said to him then, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread, meet your own hunger, prove it. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees say the same thing. If you are the son of God, do something amazing for us. Come on, prove it, prove your own authority. But it's clear that they're not really interested in the result of this test. They have no intention of submitting to Jesus' authority, no desire to treat him as the Son of God, just as Satan had no desire to worship Jesus. They've already made their mind up about him, and they're just trying to catch him out. Like Satan in the wilderness, they are watching and waiting for Jesus to fail. So this is satanic behavior, but there's more. 
Satan's testing of Jesus in the wilderness harks back to an earlier time when Israel tested God in the wilderness. During the Exodus, when the people were hungry and thirsty, they grumbled against God. They questioned whether he was really with them or not. They asked him, did you bring us out of Egypt just to have us die of hunger and thirst in the desert? You can read about that in Exodus 17 and Psalm 95 in your own time. The place where the Israelites grumbled was called Massa, the place of testing. So we can see the irony, can't we? Jesus has just fed the 5,000 Israelites and the 4,000 Gentiles. He has created bread from nothing in the desert, not to feed himself, but to meet his people's hunger and thirst. He's proved himself, obviously, clearly, to be the Son of God, the great provider, the one who meets his people's needs, just as God did for his people in the Exodus when he gave them manna in the wilderness. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees here are putting themselves on the side of Satan and on the side of the faithless, grumbling generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt. But there's more. Jesus gives us an even more negative portrayal of these men. In verse 4, Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. That's language from Deuteronomy 32. We looked at that nearly a year ago, if you can think back that far. And we saw there that Moses predicted that the Israelites would abandon their God and cease to be his children. And that word adulterous reminds us of the, the later prophets of Israel who accused the people of abandoning their first love, abandoning their heavenly husband, and seeking after the idols of the nations. And later in the passage, Jesus will tell the disciples to avoid the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Again, that should ring a bell from the Old Testament. When the people left Egypt, they were told to make bread without yeast. And therefore, for generations, yeast symbolized their slavery in Egypt and the oppression of the foreign enemies. So do you see what these men are in Jesus' eyes? They are satanic, faithless, adulterous, idolatrous enemies of God. And we might think, well, of course, they're the bad guys. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know they're no goods. But let's consider them again. Who are these people? Well, there's another way to view them. They are rigorous, serious people. They're intelligent and independent-minded. They want to be guided by evidence. They want um, a sign from, uh, from Jesus. They want evidence. They, might, they have what we might call today a healthy skepticism. They even have a certain unity and diversity. The Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed about an awful lot, but here they're working together in what they sincerely believe is the common goods. You see, if they were around today, I, would th- I think we might say they embody the ideals of our society. Independence, critical thinking, a reliance on the evidence. You see, we might be tempted to write them off as just bad guys. But they're perhaps more like us than we would like to admit. And so as Jesus critiques them, we need to be on the lookout for the ways that he may be critiquing us and be prepared for that. So let's see what he says they've got so wrong. Look at verse 2. They ask him to show him a sign. And he replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees have asked for a sign from heaven, but Jesus turns the tables on them with a bit of a play on words. The Greek words for heaven and sky is exactly the same word. And so he says to them, you want a sign from heaven? You want signs from the sky? Well, you already get those, and you already know how to read those. As we would say, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Did you know that was in the Bible? Here it is. Jesus says that. Jesus is commending these people for their skill and their ability and their intelligence in reading the signs of the weather. They're not stupid, these guys. They know how the world generally works and they know how to make life work. Red sky at night, well, that means it's going to be dry tomorrow so we can plan for a day's outdoor work, a day's farming. Red sky, wake up in the morning, red sky in the morning, that means they should change their plans, do something useful indoors instead because it's going to rain. See, they can read the world, they can understand the signs of the sky, the signs of heaven, and they can see how they should live off the back of it. That's good. But Jesus says to them, there's something you've missed. There's a really, really obvious thing that you're not seeing. You've asked me for a sign, but verse 3, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What does he mean? Well, notice here that signs is plural. Actually, Jesus says, You've already had plenty of signs. You've seen quite enough. We don't know exactly which miracles of Jesus they've been present for, but he's been going around Galilee working wonders for a while now. The request for more evidence for another sign shows us that actually nothing's going to convince them. If they haven't believed by now, then another miracle is not going to change anything. They're so hardened in their opposition to Jesus that they will find a way to explain away anything that he can possibly show them. You see, their skepticism is not actually healthy. It is unhealthy, twisted, obsessive. In their pride and arrogance, they've already decided who Jesus is. They've so set themselves against Jesus and above him that, that nothing will now convince them. I wonder if you see that dynamic in our world. The last few years have seen a huge rise, it would seem, in conspiracy theories. You know, the earth is flat, 9-11 was an inside job, the moon landings were faked. More and more people seem to be believing this sort of thing. Perhaps this is evidence of something G.K. Chesterton once said, that if you stop believing in God, you'll end up believing in anything. Or perhaps it's a question of people losing trust in authority and searching for their own answers and theories. But whatever the source... If you've ever met a conspiracy theorist, you'll know how hard it is to get them to change their minds. Once you believe there is a giant conspiracy to suppress the truth, anyone who disagrees with you, well, they're just one of them, aren't they? They're just part of that conspiracy. But it's not just conspiracy theorists who have this problem. We all have biases, don't we? We all desperately want some things to be true and desperately want some things not to be true. The Pharisees and Sadducees desperately want Jesus not to be the Son of God. Because if he's the Son of God, then he's in charge. He gets to define the parameters of my life. He gets to tell me what to do and how I should think. And I have to submit to him. And we must be aware, here and now, that we are biased not to believe that as well. We want to be in charge ourselves, don't we? And so as we come to Jesus, we need to be aware that perhaps our hearts and our thinkings are more like the Pharisees and Sadducees that perhaps we would like to admit. So we need to be aware what it means for us 
if we approach Jesus with skepticism and with pride? What will become of us? What becomes of people who do that? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 4 that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. We might wonder what that means, but actually we don't have to guess because Jesus has already explained this. Would you turn back with me um, a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 12? Um, it's just a couple of pages back. Page numbers on the screen, page 978. At the beginning of Matthew 12, uh, someone bring in, uh, brings a demon-possessed man to Jesus and Jesus casts the demon out. Now that's a fairly powerful sign, isn't it? That is a sign that Jesus is really who he says he is, that he's the son of God, that he's the one who's come from heaven to bring about God's kingdom. And the Pharisees see it. What do they think about it? Are they convinced? No, of course they're not. If you look at verse 24, they accuse Jesus of dabbling in the dark arts, of being a servant of the devil himself. They don't believe the sign. And then look what happens in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Do you see the same proud, arrogant attitude? The Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus and demand a sign. Prove yourself, they insist, despite the fact that Jesus literally just has. He's just done it. He's just cast a demon out of somebody. And they didn't believe it. And they say, come on, we want something else. Prove it. And Jesus, just like in Matthew 16, gives the same answer. He's simply not interested in proving himself to people who've already decided against him and won't believe the evidence of their own eyes anyway. But he does say that another sign is coming. A sign not from heaven, but from the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was in one sense buried and dead under the sea for three days, so Jesus will be buried and dead under the earth for three days, but then he will rise again. That sign, that resurrection will be God's full and final stamp of approval on Jesus, the final confirmation of his identity and authority as the Son of God, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. But do you see in these verses in chapter 12 that Jesus doesn't expect the Pharisees to believe that either? He doesn't expect them to believe it when he risen, he's risen from the dead. He doesn't even need to wait to see whether or not they will believe his resurrection. He knows that they won't because they're not listening to his words here and now. The men of Nineveh, those ancient enemies of God, heard the preaching of Jonah and they believed it, even though they didn't see Jonah come back from the belly of the fish. Jonah didn't even mention it when he went preaching in Nineveh. But as they heard Jonah speak, as they heard him warn of the coming wrath of God, as he heard them calling them to repent, they realized that they were hearing the voice of God himself addressing them. And so what did they do? Well, they humbled themselves and they repented and they asked for mercy and they were forgiven. And Jesus says, well, I'm no less of a preacher than Jonah. In fact, I'm greater than he. 
I'm the son of God himself, but as I'm speaking, you're hardening yourself against me. And so even when I rise from the dead, you're not going to believe that, are you? And so on the last day, that even the men of Nineveh, even those ancient enemies of God's people, are going to look at the Pharisees and say, what were you thinking? How foolish could you be? How arrogant can you get to see the signs of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus and deliberately refuse to bow the knee to him? And so back in chapter 16, a few chapters, a few weeks, perhaps months later, we learn the Pharisees did not heed Jesus' warning in chapter 12. They're still at it. Even as the Canaanite woman is brought into the kingdom of God, even as the 4,000 plus Gentiles are fed and nourished with Jesus' abundance, uh, as even more ancient enemies of God, like the Ninevites, are brought into the kingdom, yet these Jewish religious leaders, with all their intelligence and skill and seriousness and impressiveness, are still at it, asking for signs. And so they will still stand condemned on the last day. They're going to find themselves on the outside of the kingdom. You see, they give a very good impression of being authentic hunters after knowledge. They're healthily skeptical. They're following the science. They're believing the evidence. But really, they are biased, faithless, arrogant fools who've already decided in their hearts to hate Jesus and to reject him because he represents a challenge to their position and to their way of life and to their understanding. See, they want to evaluate Jesus on their own terms. They want him to conform himself to their preconceptions. But all that means is that they approach him with stubbornness, arrogance, and inflexible pride. They will not humble themselves. They will not admit their sin and hypocrisy. The blow to their pride would be too great. And so they will not believe the evidence of their own eyes, and they will not listen. And so, verse 4, Jesus leaves them. It is the briefest of stopovers in Galilee. Immediately, Jesus gets back in the boat with his disciples, verse 5, and heads up to Caesarea Philippi, as we see in verse 13, another Gentile area. Once again, as we saw last week, Jesus has withdrawn from the Jewish authorities and gone away to the nations. It's not the end of the story for the Jews, but it is the beginning of the story for the Gentiles. And from Caesarea Philippi, he's going to work his way down to Jerusalem for his final confrontation with the Jewish authorities, which will lead to his death. And although he is going to stop off in Galilee on the way down, he only speaks to his disciples there. The mission to Galilee for the time being, is over. And so now, the attention focuses on the disciples. They have some precious one-on-one time with Jesus as they sail over Lake Galilee once again, and we're going to see Jesus give them a bit of training. We've learned one or two things about the disciples in recent weeks, haven't we? We've seen them be a bit confused about Jesus in the region of Tyre and Sidon. They asked him, if you remember, to send the Canaanite woman away. She was just a bit annoying and they wanted to get rid of her. And they didn't seem to expect him to be able or willing to feed the 4,000 Gentiles in the same way that he'd fed the 5,000 Jews. Again, they said, well, how are we going to feed this lot? As if they hadn't seen the earlier miracle. They clearly haven't quite tuned into what Jesus is doing. They perhaps didn't expect him to show the same compassion and care for the Gentiles as he'd done for their own people. And the other thing we've learned about the disciples, perhaps 
unsurprisingly for a group of 12 men, is that they are terrible at remembering their packed lunch. Look with me at verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. What are we to make of this interaction? I think it's fairly clear what Jesus is talking about, isn't it? He's, he's just spoken to the Pharisees and Sadducees, that, who were, you know, not very good. And he's already used the metaphor of yeast before, back in chapter 13, when he talked about the kingdom of heaven as being like yeast, as a small and seemingly insignificant thing, which nevertheless works its way through a huge batch of dough and changes the character of it. It makes all the difference. It might not look like much, but yeast is a powerful, pervasive influence. And here he says that the thinking and teaching and the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees that you've just seen, lads, is similarly pervasive and powerful. Their skepticism and pride might look on the surface to be nothing to worry about. After all, they're serious and well-respected and religious, and they live upright moral lives. But Jesus says, no, don't be taken in. Don't be fooled by outward appearances. This is a deadly, dangerous mode of thinking. And the disciples think he's rebuking them for forgetting their lunch. Um, How did they get from what Jesus said to that? It reminds me of... um, doing GCSE German oral exams. I don't know if they still do those. Do you remember that? You go into a room and your teacher says, Hello, wie geht es dir? Möchtest du mir sagen, warst du am Strand? And you think to yourself, well, I heard the words hello and beach, so I'm just going to say a sentence with those words in it and hope for the best. That's how I passed. A star, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's like that, isn't it? Jesus has said the word yeast, and they just think, okay, I know something about yeast. It goes in bread. It's like he's speaking a completely different language. How did they get it so wrong? Well, I think there's a clue in verse 7. Jesus says something that they don't quite understand. So what do they do? Verse 7, they discuss it among themselves. Jesus is speaking, and they turn away from him to share their own understanding of what's going on. Do you see that? Do you remember how, back when we looked at the parable of the sower, how Jesus explained why he taught in parables? He taught in parables not to make things clearer, but actually to make things more obscure so that those who were really listening would lean into Jesus, would walk towards him with their questions. It was a way to divide those who were really interested in Jesus from those whose hearts were already hardened against them. And Jesus said then, back in Matthew 13 on the screen, he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. At that point, the disciples were given the explanation of the parable, more of the word of God, more of Jesus, more understanding, because they asked him to explain it. They said, the parable of the sower, we didn't get it. What was, what was that about? Whoever has will be given more. And we've just seen Jesus take away his word from the Pharisees and Sadducees who are sitting in arrogant condemnation of Jesus' words. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And so now as Jesus speaks this mini parable about yeast, what do the disciples do? They turn away. And they decide for themselves what they think it means. 
and they get it spectacularly, horribly, embarrassingly wrong. And so do you see now why Jesus warns them so firmly against adopting the same stance as the Pharisees and Sadducees? It's because they're starting to do it. They didn't get what he was doing in Tyre and Sidon. They didn't see that he was abundantly sharing himself with the Gentiles. They didn't understand, perhaps, that his mission extended beyond the borders of Israel. They perhaps thought that Jesus was just for them. And although they're not in the same boat as the Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, literally, they're in the same boat as Jesus, yet they, too, have a blind spot about Jesus and his identity and his mission. They, too, are in danger of putting themselves above Jesus and judging his behavior and deciding for himself what they think he means and just simply not listening to what he has to say. And so Jesus has strong words for them. Look at verse 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus' rebuke works on a couple of levels, I think. Their first interpretation of Jesus' words is that he's upset that they haven't brought any lunch with them. But Jesus reminds them that when they're with him, bread is not a problem. He's able to produce basketfuls and basketfuls of bread at the drop of a hat. Jesus at one level is saying, I'm, I'm not worried about bread, lads, I can sort that. And you shouldn't be worried about it either when you're with me. But Jesus' rebuke goes deeper, I think. Notice in verse 9 and 10 that Jesus doesn't just talk about what he did when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, but about what they did. They gathered the baskets. With their own eyes and with their own hands, they saw and touched an extraordinary sign of Jesus' power and compassion. Power and compassion which overspills the boundaries of Israel and extends to the whole world. They have seen, in fact, what the Pharisees and Sadducees were asking to see. And yet just now, they're not seeing. They're not remembering. They're not listening. They are in danger of making exactly the same mistake as the satanic, faithless, idolatrous, adulterous enemies of God whom Jesus has just left. The disciples talking about their forgotten pat lunch is not just a silly and laughable, embarrassing mistake. It's a potential symptom of a deadly disease. And that is why Jesus is so stern with them. He says to them, verse 9, do you still not understand? He says in verse 11, how is it that you don't understand? We need to be clear, Jesus is not criticizing them for being a bit dim. He's not saying they're thick. He's not saying they're stupid. This is not an intellectual problem. The Pharisees and Sadducees weren't stupid. They were perfectly clever and able to intellectually understand their problem was moral and spiritual, not intellectual. And that's why Jesus calls them in verse 8, you of little faith. We've seen him use that language a few times before. And it's worth us recalling one example of that in particular. In Matthew 6, Jesus calls on his disciples not to be anxious about food and drink. And look with me on the screen at what he says, Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, 
or about your body, what you'll wear? Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See, the disciples at this moment are fixated on the things of this world, whether they have enough food to eat, where their next meal is coming from. In a different way, so were the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees were literally fixated on this world because they believed it was all there was. The Pharisees are fixated on their own power and status and reputation in this world. And so all three groups therefore miss Jesus' teaching completely. They're not seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. God and his plans and his mission and his purposes are completely absent from their thinking. They're just thinking about their stomachs. And so what does that mean when Jesus, God's king, comes into the world and begins to speak? It means that they filter everything he says through the lens of their own concerns. The disciples are thinking about their stomachs and imagine that Jesus is talking about that too. And so they don't listen to him. The Pharisees and Sadducees see Jesus as a threat to their theology, to their traditions, to their way of life, to their status. Again, they filter it all through their concerns, and so they take against him. They're so fixated on the here and now, on the material, that they're in danger of missing out on what God is doing in the world in Jesus, missing his kingdom and his righteousness. And that takes us back to a final detail we skipped over. Jesus said in verse 3 that what the Pharisees and Sadducees were misinterpreting were the signs of the times. Why the times? Well, in chapter 6, Jesus tells us that his arrival is the time when God's kingdom and righteousness are made known. In chapter 12, Jesus tells us this is the time when God has sent his most powerful preacher into the world. In chapter 15, Jesus showed us that this is the time when God's grace spills out from Israel and reaches to the whole world. And so these are the times of God's kingdom. These are the times of God's Christ. These are the times of decision. It is time for the Pharisees and Sadducees to stop building their own little kingdoms of power and authority and to submit to Jesus. It is time for the disciples to stop thinking about their stomachs. It is time for all of us to stop discussing who we think God is in our little private discussion groups and listen to the authoritative voice of Jesus. It is time for those of little faith to imitate the woman of great faith in the last chapter who humbly submitted to Jesus' words and so received his abundant grace. And so where does this leave the disciples? Well, at this point, Jesus has said to them that they have little faith, but they do have faith. As we've seen before, a little faith is enough 
if it's faith in the right person, if it's faith in Jesus. And we see that in the very last verse of our passage today, verse 12. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Free! They get it. Good on them. I think that's meant to be funny, by the way. They finally twig that Jesus is talking about something more than bread. They finally stop thinking about their stomachs. It's a very small thing they get, isn't it? It's this little glimmer of understanding. But as we'll see next week, this small glimmer of understanding from men of little faith leads to them grasping a very, very big thing about Jesus. And even though we'll see their understanding is going to go up and down, they still have a long way to go, as have we all. Yet because they're listening to Jesus, because they have that much, then more and more and more is going to be added to them. Well, as we conclude, let's think about us. What about us? We're not in quite the same time and context as the disciples and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have not seen with our own eyes or touched with our own hands the miraculous signs of Jesus, but we have heard his words today. We have heard the preaching of the one who is greater than Jonah. And that is because although the mission to Galilee ends in this chapter, Jesus did return here later. His final confrontation with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem led to his death on a cross, a death where he took the punishment for all of our stubbornness and our pride and our arrogance and our hypocrisy and our inflexibility and our lack of understanding. He took it all so that we might be forgiven it. And when he rose again, that sign of Jonah, which showed that he truly is the king who offers grace to the whole world, he returned to Galilee one last time. Look at the on the screen at these words from Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Notice there that even now, some of the disciples, bless them, are still doubting. Their journey to trusting Jesus is not yet finished. And yet here in Galilee, in the place of darkness and rejection, Jesus through them launches the mission of God to all nations that is going to bring light to a crooked and twisted generation. The mission which thousands of years later and hundreds of miles away has reached us in Lancaster today. We've heard the preaching of the one greater than Jonah. We've read the reports of the signs which show us who he is and what he was about. We have heard of his resurrection from the dead, the sign from the heart of the earth. So the question for us today is, will we read the signs of the times? This is the time of the Lord's favor This is the time that God has granted when it is still possible to hear the words of Jesus and humble our pride and come into his kingdom of forgiveness and eternal life. And so if you are here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you're really, really welcome. We're so glad you're here. But let me ask you this. How are you approaching Jesus? Are you honestly seeking him, knowing that he will at some points disagree with you and want to change your mind 
Are you prepared for him to reveal himself to you as your Lord, as someone who you will need to submit to? Or are you approaching him skeptically, looking for reasons to dismiss him and ignore him? If that's you, if you're in the latter camp there, then you should be aware that if you approach Jesus like that, you're just going to miss who he is, and you'll miss out on the joy of knowing his forgiveness. So if that is you, I'd love you to ask yourself that question that we said at the beginning of the sermon. Why aren't you believing in Jesus? What is in your heart that's stopping you? But on the other hand, if we approach Jesus humbly, aware of our own desires and biases, but willing to be taught and trained by him, we will find that he gives us more and more. Being a Christian does not mean that we never have any doubts or confusions about Jesus. The disciples show us that. But it means that we're brought into living relationship with him, where he speaks to us by his word, where he hears our prayers when we come to him and ask for understanding. Little by little, he reveals more about himself to those who earnestly and humbly seek him. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, there is every reason to believe in Jesus, every reason to keep coming to his word and keep submitting to his authority, every reason to keep on trusting in his grace. And so let's pray together that that would characterize us more and more. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we confess that our hearts are not always pure towards you, that very often we have biases and desires that stop us hearing the word rightly, that sometimes when we don't get something in the Bible, it's not because we intellectually don't understand it, it's because we don't want to believe it. We confess that that is who we are, and we thank you that you've sent your son Jesus and that by your spirit you've changed our hearts and minds to submit to him and to believe in him. We're aware that's a miracle and we praise you and thank you for it. And thank you that in all of our doubts and our questionings and our lack of understanding, when we come to you, when we come to your word prayerfully, yet you keep giving us more and more and more of yourself. Father, help us in our doubts. Help us in our reluctance to submit to you. Help us to be people whose hearts are open and humble before the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that uh, all of us would want to know him more. Whether we know him as our saviour yet today or not, please would you give us all a desire to know him more. Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you keep us walking the path of repentance and faith in him? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.